0: The Torah content for this week has been sponsored by Judah and Naomi Dardick in honor of Rabbi Moskowitz's second yard site and in appreciation for all those whose love of Torah and excitement for ideas shines in their teaching. Hello, I'm Rabbi Matt and this is the audio version of the two-page article I wrote and published on my Substack at rabbishneweiss.substack.com on December 1st, 2023. And the article is entitled Vayishlach, When Should the Righteous Bow Before the Wicked? If you're ever in need of a last-minute Devar Torah, and you're a fan of Sefer Mishle, then have I got a pro tip for you. Each week, Rabbeinu Bachi ben Asher, who lived from 1255 to 1340 CE, begins his commentary by expounding on a Pasuk from Mishle, which he connects to the weekly Torah reading. For Parshas Vayishlach, he selects the following Pasuk. Quote, Like a trampled wellspring and a tainted fountainhead, so is a tzaddik, a righteous person, who falters before a rasha, an evil person. End quote from Mishlei twenty five twenty six. 26 expounds, quote, Here Shlomo HaMelech teaches us about the exalted level of the Tzadik, that even when the Tzadik falls and is given over into the hands of the Russia and falters before him, that faltering is only temporary. It will not last forever, and he will ultimately escape from it, as it is written, for a Tzadik falls seven times and gets up again. That's from Mishle twenty four is, he will ultimately return to his former stature and glory. He is likened to a wellspring, which is muddied and trampled underfoot, and becomes temporarily sullied, but that sullying is impermanent and will not last forever, since it will ultimately return to its pristine state. So too the Russia will not be able to diminish the glory of the tzaddik, nor dim the light of his virtuous countenance, so as to negate his prior righteousness, just as no man can sully the waters of a wellspring in a manner which prevents their return to a state of clarity and purity. In the Midrash, Rabba seventy-five two, it is stated, like a trampled wellspring and a tainted fountainhead, so is a tzaddik who falters before Russia. This is Yaakov, who called Asav my lord, several times. That's end quote from the Midrash. And even though he ultimately was saved from his hand and was restored to his clarity like a wellspring, nevertheless, we find that he faltered and was exceedingly subjugated before him, such that he needed to to send him a tribute and messengers. End quote from Rabbeinu Bachya. citation of for a tzaddik falls seven times and gets up, suggests that he understands our Wellspring Pasuk to be about the tzaddik's integrity and resilience. The tzaddik will remain committed to his principles even if the Russia temporarily hinders him. Since these principles are in line with God's will, i.e. the design of the world, the tzaddik's commitment will be rewarded and he will ultimately flourish once again. At the same time, Rabbeinu Re- Bachia's emphasis on the tzaddik's eventual return to quote, his ma'ala, stature, and kavod, glory, imply that our Pusuk is about the Tzaddik's reputation in the eyes of others, something which the Tzaddik doesn't value intrinsically, but which nevertheless has an impact on his life and the lives of those around him. After all, the Tzaddik strives to be a beacon of righteousness in the world, and a tarnished reputation will impede that goal. Nevertheless, our Pusuk teaches us that even though a Russia might temporarily sully a Tzaddik's reputation, the Tzaddik will not allow the Russia to corrupt him. The fountainhead of his righteousness will continue to flow pure, and the muddied waters will eventually return to their pristine condition. The question is, what are the parameters and limitations of the idea in this Pasuk? Are all tzaddikim immune to corruption in all scenarios, simply by virtue of their virtue? Or are there certain cases in which they endanger their righteousness or reputation by capitulating to a Russia? Tzaddik answers this question in his commentary on Mishle 25-26. He explains that there are two cases of a tzaddik bowing to a rasha, one in which the tzaddik makes himself submissive in hope of obtaining some benefit from the rasha, and the other in which the tzaddik acts submissively as a precaution to protect himself from a potential harm at the hands of the rasha. Our pasuk is condemning the first case and approving the second. Tzaddik cites Yehoshaphat HaMelech as an example of the first category of capitulation. Yehoshaphat was a tzaddik who, quote, walked in the ways of Asa, his righteous father, and did not deviate from doing what is upright in the eyes of Hashem, end quote. Uh, that's from Diver HaYamim 2032, Diver HaYamim base. However, towards the end of his reign, quote, he allied himself with Ahaziah, king of Israel, who acted wickedly, end quote. Yehoshaphat was condemned for this by the Navi, who declared, quote, because you have allied yourself uh, with Ahaziah, Hashem has wrecked your undertakings, end quote, and wrecked them he did, This was a case of bowing before a Russia to secure an advantage. Sadigun cites Yaakov as an example of the second category of capitulation. Yaakov was concerned that Esau would kill his entire family out of revenge for being robbed of his birthright and his blessing. He took several precautionary measures to protect himself, his wives, and his children. One of his strategies was to behave in an obsequious manner towards Esau. Yaakov sent him gifts, referred to himself as your servant and to his brother as my lord, and literally bowed to him, as it is stated. Then he he himself went on ahead of them and bowed earthward seven times until he reached his brother. This was clearly a case of Atadik bowing before a Russia out of precaution. Yaakov was not interested in obtaining any benefit from Aesov. At the time of this article's publication, we will have been at war with Hamas and the forces of evil for fifty six days and counting. Our enemies have killed 1,200-plus Israelis, wounded an additional 3,700-plus more, and are still holding on to 140-plus hostages. Even without knowing the myriad details that have not been disclosed to the public, it is reasonable to assume that Israel has had to make some of the most difficult choices in its 75-year history. Regrettably, many of these choices involve the question of whether we ought to make concessions to our enemies, enemies who are the very embodiment of evil. I refer not only to the incredibly complex decisions in the effort to save the hostages, or to the strategic considerations involved with waging the ground war in Gaza, or to the need to work with other groups and nations with whom we have strained relations. I am also talking about the daily decisions faced by Jews around the world as the wave of global anti-Semitism continues to rise. When should we take a stand for Israel, and when is it wiser to keep quiet? Is calling attention to instances of anti-Semitism a precautionary measure, or are we just giving more power to those who seek to intimidate us? Should we refuse to compromise our positions on Israel if doing so jeopardizes our safety and the safety of our families? To what extent should we concern ourselves with Israel's reputation? Is the reputational damage temporary or permanent? I don't know the answers to these questions. I doubt there is a single answer, rule, or policy that would obviate the need for a case-by-case analysis. But I do know one thing. That we should look to the Torah for guidance. Shlomo HaMelech didn't write that Passocket Mishleh merely as an intellectual exercise. He wrote it so that we could learn how to make better decisions and hone our Mishleic intuition. Rabbi Bachia and Sadi Gaon didn't cite Parshas Vayishlach for the sake of our literary enrichment. They pointed us towards the example of Yaakov so that we can emulate him when we find ourselves in similar circumstances. This single idea from Mishlei may not be sufficient to help us figure out what to do in every situation, but each idea we learn is another tool in our decision-making toolbox. Each idea increases the odds that we will do the right thing when called upon to act. As for the present war, we have one more advantage that our enemies lack. We know which side will win, because we know which side Hashem supports. Granted, we don't know what the outcome of this war will be, but we do know what the endgame scenario will look like. As this week's haftara, Sefer Ovadia, concludes, quote, "And saviors will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of asaph and the kingdom will be Hashem's." End quote. But there's a catch. We have to earn that divine support by acting with righteousness and wisdom.